All right. So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Jude. Book of Jude towards the end of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. Book of Jude, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 of the book of Jude. So let's pray again. Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts to hear what your Spirit would have to say to us. Lord, we know that we're in the last days, and Lord, you call us to watch and wait and to be ready. Lord, but we also, Lord, we know we have the responsibility to stand strong in the faith, Lord, and, and do the work, Lord, that you've called us to do as your stewards, as your saints, Lord, as your beloved. pray that you would encourage us tonight and continue to work in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Americans, we understand that there are some things worth fighting for, right? We just celebrated D-Day on Monday, right, as we remember the bravery of those men that stormed that beach there. But we also look forward in a couple weeks to the 4th of July. Now, beyond the barbecue and the fireworks, you know, 4th of July, it's a reminder of the bravery of our founders and that those that went before us were willing to stand for and defend freedom and liberty. It's a good reminder. Now, Jude in this epistle reminds us of our heritage and our legacy as believers, as saints of God. You see, the apostles and the the prophets of the New Testament laid the foundation of the church, and they have gone before us, and they have given us the faith, and they contended for the faith, and the Bible says that we're to do the same. We're to remember that and continue to do the same as they did. Look what Jude says in verse 3. He says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now, scholars point out that the words contend earnestly is an attempt that implies a continuous battle. It wasn't a one-time event that the folks in Jude day would do. No, it would in every generation of the church. Until the Lord comes, believers need to abide in the faith and stand in the faith, and and as required, contend for the faith. Now, Jude prepares us in this letter by putting us to a spiritual boot camp, right? He gets us ready to contend for the faith, and he does so by teaching us about the contender, the content of the faith, the characteristics and the condemnation of false teachers, and then finally he gives us some commands for you and I as contenders. And so we'll look at each one of those as we work through this letter this evening. So first of all, let's look at the contender. Who is Jude writing to? And we see that in verses 1 and 2. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now the name Jude is actually Judas in the Greek. He's called Judas in the Gospels. And that's the name Judah in Hebrew. So that's who was. His name was Judah because he was from the line of Judah, as we'll see. Translators give him the name Jude because they don't want people to be confused with Judas Iscariot. And so they they put his name as Jude. Now, Jude is called here to be the brother of James, that is, the half-brother of Jesus. In Mark, in chapter 6, verse 3, tells us that Jesus, after he was born, Mary and Joseph had children, and those children were Jude and James. He also had another brother, Simeon, and then he also had some sisters as well. Now, we know in the Gospel of John, as we studied a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, verse 5, that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. They weren't following him. They even mocked him. 
at times. But we are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose again from the dead, James came to know the Lord. He came to be saved. And so uh, he, he did see the Lord. But we're not told that Jude saw the Lord. And so maybe James, after he saw you know, his half-brother Jesus risen again, he went and preached to Jude, and Jude also got saved. But both of them became believers, and they lived life sold out for the Lord. And we see that in the fact that he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, a bondservant under the Jewish law was someone who would be required to serve their master for six years. And at the seventh year, they could go free. But if they chose to stay with their master, they would pierce their ear with an awe, and they would serve that master for life. They would be a bondservant for life. And that's what Jude considers himself as. He doesn't say, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. He says, hey, no, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. I have committed my life to follow Jesus with everything I have. And James did the same. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that his brothers were with them in the upper room before the day of Pentecost. And then after the Spirit came, both James and Jude had ministries of the Lord. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 5 that they traveled with their wife and they did ministry. So they were both married and they had a wife and they went around and did ministry with their wife. Now Jude describes his audience here and he describes them as those who are called, sanctified, and preserved. And so he's writing to a group of Jewish believers. We know they're Jewish because he's going to use the Old Testament a lot. He's even going to use Jewish tradition. And he's going to refer to the writings of Peter in Second Peter, because Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And if you look at Second Peter chapters 2 and 3, it's almost identical to the book of Jude, because Jude was probably following what, what Peter wrote to these believers. Now, Jude uses what's called triads in this book. If you read the Gospel of John, you see that John wrote in sevens, seven signs, seven discourses, seven I am statements. He thought in sevens. But Jude thinks in threes. They're called triads. And we see that here in verse one, three words, called, sanctified, preserved. And then in verse two, he's going to give us three words. And then in verses five through seven, he gives threes, eight, 11, 19, 20, through 21 and 25. Some people even think that there's some 18 triads in this book. So that's your homework tonight. See if you can find 18 of them. A lot of it has to do with your translation, um, but, you know, there are triads in this book. Now, Jude uses these three terms to describe the believer in Jesus Christ. He says that you and I are called. That's past tense. Now, the calling of the believer is that act of grace by which God invites you to salvation through the gospel. All who respond to this call, to the gospel, are the called of Jesus Christ. We are, we're in, in that. We're justified. We're born again. We're also sanctified by God the Father. That's present tense. God is continuing to change you into the image, image of Jesus. Now, if you have a newer translation, yours might read, Beloved. And that's also true of you. You're in the Beloved. You're God's loved one, and he set you apart, and he's going to make you like Christ. Preserve speaks of our future hope in Jesus. It's pointing towards our future. And you and I are kept by the power of God, as Peter says in his epistle, until the Lord brings us to glory. And that's why the Lord saved you. He saved you for glory. Day by day, he's transforming you. And one day, you'll receive the redemption of your body. You know, if, if you die now, you go to heaven. The rapture, you'll receive your resurrected body. Or if you're alive when the rapture happens, you'll be glorified. But either way, the Lord is going to keep you, Jude says, until he brings you to glory. So he's writing to believers here. 
Then he goes on in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so Jude now is going to use three words to illustrate the multiple blessings that we have because of the three terms of our salvation, past, present, and future. You and I have mercy. You see, we deserve judgment. That's what we deserve. But God hasn't given us what we deserve. He's given us mercy. But he's also given us what we don't deserve, which is grace. He continues to love us, and we stand in his grace. We're also told here that we have peace. And this speech of the inner peace that we have because we know God's mercy, right? Because I know that I am in the grace of God and under God's mercy, I don't have to fear God as an angry taskmaster. I can relate to him as a loving father, knowing that he wants what's good for me and, and what is, you know, what is going to make me more like his son, Jesus. Love is the affection and care that God gives for us as his adopted children. And so Jude says, here's who I'm writing to. Here's who the contenders are. It's the average everyday believer because these terms are all true of every single person in Christ. He's not writing to a group of super saints or to a seminary class. He's writing to everyday believers, just like you and I. And, and, and these are the folks that God has called to be contenders. Now in verse 3, secondly, we see the content of the faith. Beloved, I was, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The believers were Jude's beloved. That's who they were to him. They were his beloved. He loved them, and because he loved them, he spoke the truth to them. Truth and love go together. And if you really love a person, you'll speak the truth to them. Love does not compromise truth, unlike what our culture and our society says. No, we speak the truth in love. And Jude was not someone who would compromise the truth. But nor was Jude an angry blogger. Blog, 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 right? Just like one of those guys who just is, he's angry at everybody. He wants to just blast everybody angry. No, that wasn't Jude at all. He was a faithful pastor. He was a faithful pastor that loved these saints and that he was stirred by the Spirit to protect his flock because, as we're going to see, savage wolves were coming in and they were going to hurt the flock. And so he, out of love, was going to respond in order to protect these sheep here. Now, Jude's initial desire, as he says, was to write a letter addressing our common salvation. He wanted to write a book about the joys that we have in our salvation. But while he sat down and write, God had a different purpose in mind. I like that he says that he was very diligent to write to you about this common salvation. Maybe Jude even started preparing for it. Maybe he spent a lot of time thinking about it, and he was just so excited, and he sat down. God was like, oh, I have something different for you to do right now. God moved him to write a letter of exhortation, that is a warning to the saints here, rather than just a common letter about our salvation. And we're told here that he told them to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's the exhortation that he gave them. Now, Warren Wiersbe comments on this word contend. He says, the Greek word is an athletic term that gives us our English word agonize. It's the picture of a devoted athlete competing in the Greek games and stretching his nerves and his muscles to his very best to win. So it's action. It's talking about action here. It's something that we need to apply ourselves to do. And so, in other words, we need to know the faith. We need to actively stand for it. And if, if need be, we need to step out and contend for it. 
Now, what is the faith that Jude is talking about? Well, the faith is talking about the body of revealed truth that was laid down by the New Testament apostles and prophets. We're told that they went out and laid the foundation of the church. In the book of Acts, we're told that they taught the apostles' doctrine. That's what the apostles did, and that is they did what Christ told them to do in the Great Commission. They sat down, and they taught them everything that Christ had taught them. That was the apostles' doctrine, and they taught other people and went, and went around and spread. There was a lot of different gospel accounts because people were orally teaching about the gospel. Now, as these believers would be scattered, God would call prophets to come alongside of the apostles, and he would give them divine revelation, truths about the faith that they were walking in through the Spirit, and they would teach. So we had apostles writing letters, and we also had prophets like Jude. He's not an apostle, but he's a prophet, and he was writing inspired letters as well, and they were teaching. And they were given everybody the faith, that is, those teachings and those doctrines that the church would, would be based upon. Now notice Jude said, by the time he wrote this letter, they were once and for all delivered to the saints. That is, by the time Jude wrote in 68 AD, all the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith were established and they would never be changed. They would never have a new revelation in the sense of a Joseph Smith or a Charles Taze Russell's. We'll talk about them in a, in a little bit. You know, th- there would be no new leader that would come on the scene and say, hey, by the way, all these things are wrong. Here's something new. No, the, the foundation that was taught by the apostles that was delivered would stand until the Lord comes. Now, what are these foundational doctrines? Well, here's some of them, basically all of them. There is one God. God is eternity. Christ was fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death on the cross for sin, rose bodily from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession to us and sent his Holy Spirit. Man is a sinner. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Jesus will come again literally a second time. Both the believer and the non-believer will be physically resurrected. The believer will spend eternity with Jesus in glory, and the non-believer will spend eternity in the lake of fire. We know these truths and live holy lives because the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired word of God and our authority for faith and living. If a person rejects these truths... Then Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.8 that they are disapproved concerning the faith. The faith. That is, they don't stand up to the test of what was taught already in the scriptures. So therefore, they are considered false teachers and we're to stay away from them. Now Jude continues to go on in verses 4 to 23 and gives us the characteristics and the condemnation of those who are false teachers. Verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny our, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is the issue. A certain false teacher had, has wormed their way into the assembly of the believers. They were among the believers. Now this is interesting because as we're going to see, Second Peter talked about false teachers that would come and Jude said, they're already here, right? That prophecy was fulfilled. These guys were among the body. And Jude said, here's a couple characteristics, actually four of them, that you can know and recognize a false teacher. First, he says that they're ungodly. And this word ungodly is a word that means basically not to follow God, to be without God. 
and to not follow his ways. And so that's what they're about. They weren't believers. They weren't following the Lord's ways. And as we'll see, they were fully carnal in their flesh. Second, they distorted the grace of God. They were teaching what's called a license to sin. They said, yeah, we're under grace. And good news, that means you can just do whatever you want because the body, it's material. So if you give your body to live in the flesh, it doesn't matter. And what's interesting is Peter actually talks about people that said that in 2 Peter chapter 3, saying that people have taken Paul's writings about grace and twisted them to their own destruction. And so we see that here with these folks. Third, they had denied the Lord God and Jesus Christ. So in other words, they were speaking something that was false against Christ's person and his work, whether it be about his nature, his atonement, his resurrection, or his second coming. Now, what's interesting is all three of these characteristics are seen in modern-day cults today. What is a modern-day cult? Well, a cult is someone who has an ungodly leader that rejects God's ways. They are a group who claims to have a new revelation, and that new revelation denies the person and work of Jesus, and they distort the grace of God, either by adding works to it, saying, oh, you're not saved by faith, but you have to do these, this and this and this. Or they distort the grace of God by saying, well, you can just do whatever you want because in the end, it's, it's okay. No, but these are all the marks of false teachers. We see that with Joseph Smith and with Charles Taze Russell, who started the Jehovah's Witness. And, um, and with a lot of these different movements today, an, an unsaved leader claims to have a new revelation, different Jesus. The Mormons believe he's the half-brother of Lucifer, brother of Lucifer. And the Jehovah's Witness believe he's the uh, Michael the Archangel. He's not God. And they both teach works for salvation. Now, Jude goes on and gives an interesting fourth characteristic here. He says that the, that the condemnation of these false teachers had been marked out long ago. Now, the phrase marked out long ago does not mean that God chose these men to be false teachers. Of course not. God doesn't do evil, right? And we have a, a free will. But no, the words marked out means to be written beforehand. That's what it means. Pro-grapho, and that's what the word is, to mark out. It means to be written before. Jude is going to show from the Old Testament and from the New Testament apostle, Peter and Paul, that they predicted these false teachers, and these men, because of that, were under condemnation. Just as God judged the false teachers in the past, these guys fit that same characteristic. So guess what? They're also under condemnation as well, and that's what Jude's talking about. So let's, let's look at Jude's teaching here from the Old Testament concerning these guys. First in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved his people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper dominion but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Jude points to three groups here. And each one of these groups was condemned by God and judged for not following God's ways. They crossed the line in specific ways. First, there was the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation continued to rebel against Moses' authority, and they ultimately rebelled against God's authority by not believing and entering into the promised land 
in numbers like God commanded them to do. And as a result, we're told that everybody over the age of 20, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness under judgment. doesn't mean that they weren't believers. They were saved, but they received a physical judgment because of that. Second, there were the angels who do not keep their proper dominion. The sinful behavior, behavior of these angels, notice this, is similar to that of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. And so this passage is referring to the sons of God, the fallen angels there in Genesis chapter 6. The sons of God crossed the line by leaving the angelic realm and taking human bodies and committing sexual immorality with the daughters of men. As a result of this sin, Jude says, these angels are in chains awaiting the punishment of the lake of fire. They crossed the line in that. Then third, there's Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities that were around them. Notice they in similar matter as the angels, so they were connected in their sexual morality. They also committed sexual morality because they did what was unnatural and strange. They crossed the line in that sense. And because of that, the destruction of their city by fire was God's revelation of what's going to happen to all who break his moral law and cross the line and commit that type of unnatural sin. And so that's what Jude's saying here. Now notice in verse 8, Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And so Jude now is going to correlate three things from these false teachers that were true of those three groups that he just talked about in verses 5 through 7. These false teachers were like the Sodomites. They were dreamers. They, were, they had depraved minds, and they were only finding ways to sin and live after their flesh. That's what the false teachers were about. They were just fleshly men who wanted to sin, and they were thinking of creative ways to be able to sin even while they were among the believers. These false teachers were like the Exodus generation who rejected the authority of Moses and complained about Moses. In the same way, these men rejected the authority of the, of the apostles and sought to turn the, the church and the believers away from the apostles, speaking evil about them and falsely. It's amazing to me that when Paul writes his letters and things, that there were actually people in the church that were speaking evil of the apostle Paul. It just blows my mind. And that's what these false teachers were. They would come in and undermine the authority of the leaders, especially the apostles and the prophets and the pastors of, pastors of the churches. These false teachers were like the fallen angels of Genesis 6. You see, they were crossing the line in what they taught. That's what Jude says here. They crossed the line in what they taught. They claimed to have secret knowledge of the angelic realm. And they were even speaking evil of angelic dignitaries, angelic beings. They claimed to have spiritual insight. And this insight came only from them. Notice what Jude goes on to say here in verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel... And contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring an against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of, of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beast, in these things they corrupt themselves. Now, these guys were talking about the angelic realm, and they were speaking falsely and crossing the line. And Jude said, Listen, if there was anybody who can speak about angelic beings, it would be a person in the angelic realm, like Michael the archangel, right? Michael the archangel, who is the leader of the armies of the angels. But yet, Jude describes a time here in which Michael did not use his own authority 
to go against an angelic being, Satan, but he used the Lord's authority to speak. The Lord rebuke you, and that's what he's saying here. Now, Jude pointed his audience to a story that is found in a non-inspired book of Jewish tradition known as the Assumption of Moses. And this book recorded this story of Michael disputing over the body of Moses and appealing to God's authority as the basis for, um, for his, his action here. Now, but notice in contrast to these false teachers, these guys were claiming their own authority to speak about the angelic realm, to speak about spiritual things. And what they were talking about, they had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> Jude said, they're totally false. And Michael didn't even choose to, to, to go that way. But rather, you know what they talk about? They talk about fleshly things, things that, that they know by their own nature because they're only out to satisfy their own flesh. And the things that they talk about, their human instincts, those are actually the things that are condemning them because they're proving themselves to be carnal and false teachers. And that's what Jude's teaching the believers. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have uh, run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so now Jude is going to give us a couple woes here of these false teachers, these guys who were condemned in the past. First, there's Cain, right? We all know about Cain. What did Cain do? He rejected God's way. God established a way in which man was to approach him through faith and through blood sacrifice. And Cain rejected that way. And when Abel brought his offering, he was jealous. And what did he do? He turned against him and he murdered him. He was angry. And that's what these false teachers were doing here. They had rejected God's way and they were angry at the apostles. Balaam was a false prophet who loved money. And he only did his work in speaking for money. And so one time, King Balak came to Balaam, and he said, hey, curse the people of God. And he says, sure, give me some money. And he tried, but he couldn't do it. And so after he tried over and over and over to curse them, but in reality, all, all he could do is give a blessing, he said, I'm going to give you a little special secret about the children of Israel. You see, they're under God's law. And the law says if Israel breaks God's law, then they are cursed, and God will judge them physically. So we're told in Revelation and the other books of the New Testament that Balaam gave Balak insight into how to make the children of Israel stumble through sexual immorality. And that's what Balak did. He sent the women in. Israel fell into sin. And what did God do? God judged them. And then Balaam was judged. He was put to death for his sin when the children of Israel were told to uh, respond in that way. But this is what these false teachers were like. They were only in the ministry for money. They're all about the greed, all about, you know, they were like the first health and wealth preachers, right? Up there just, you know, trying to get money and only talking about money and, and, and their desire for greed. And Jude said, they're false teachers. Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Remember him? He said, why does Moses and Aaron take so much authority on them? I think I should be a priest and my family should be priests. And so he came and began speaking about the priesthood of Aaron and Moses. And God said, well, let's separate them and see what happens. And a giant sea cold swallowed up Korah and his rebellion. Didn't turn out very well for them. But that's what these guys were doing to the apostles. They thought, why are these guys in charge? Don't listen to their teachings. You need to listen to us and, and, and our false ways. Verse 12, these are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. There are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
raging waves of the sea foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Bangarang Jude, right? He's just, you, you didn't want to get into a words conversation with Jude, right? He can, he can really lay it down here. So, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's really laying it down about these guys. You see, these false teachers were among their church potlucks, their love feast, the bride of Christ. And when they are among them, he said, they're really defiling the pure bride of Christ being among you. These guys are like waterless clouds. You see, they had a great presence and they claimed to offer this refreshing insight, but in reality, they had no substance whatsoever to offer. People just turned up empty. They were dead trees. They claimed to offer spiritual fruit, but yet they had no fruit to offer. They were dried up and dead, only good to be burned. They were noisy waves, talking and grumbling, talking about their great insights, but yet Jude said, they're like sea foam. They make a lot of noise, but in the end, it's just a bunch of foam floating on top of the waves. They're like wandering stars reserved for the darkness and the blackness of the heaven. That is, you couldn't follow these men. You couldn't navigate your life by their teachings. And they're not going to lead you to glory or righteousness, but rather they're like wandering stars. You can't navigate that way. But in reality, they're going to lead you to judgment, which is reserved for them because of their false teaching. Verse 14, but now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of the saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all their harsh things, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So Jude told, that, told us earlier that these guys were ungodly, and the reason why he pointed that out is because he shows how they were talked about long ago. They were actually spoke about by a guy by the name of Enoch, who we're told here is the seventh of Adam. And Enoch actually prophesied that when Jesus comes back in glory with his angels and with his church, that he would judge ungodly men who would be on the earth for their ungodly ways. And Jude said, oh yeah, by the way, these guys are fitting that description. They were written about long ago. Now, scholars believe that this quote here comes from what is known as the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, just like the former book that we mentioned, was a book of Jewish tradition. It's a non-inspired book. It was never added to the canon, nor was it ever tried to be added to the canon. But, but the truth from these books are true, and therefore the writers chose to use that quote in their writings because that writing is true. The Apostle Paul um, quoted from Greek poets in the book of Titus, and also when he was on the Areopagus, he quoted from, from Greek poets, and, and the reason why he quoted it because what they were saying, that one truth was true, and so he used it, and we do that the same. And so just because they talk about it doesn't mean that the book is inspired or even everything in the book is true, but we know that the one thing that they said in that book is true, and therefore the apostles and the prophets chose to use that one point. Verse 16, but these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they, are, and they uh, mouth great swollen words, flattering people to gain advantage. And so these false teachers, they had ungodly behavior, and they fit this description as... Um, Jude mentions that was written about in the book of Enoch. They were grumblers, complainers. They were walking according to their lust, and they were trying to appeal to people through human wisdom, through their oratory skills, through flattery. 
But all in all, it was just so they can draw a following after themselves. And Jude said, beware of people like that. So in response to these characteristics, we're given commands to follow in verses 17 through 25. Finally, we see the commands for the contender. Jude first tells us to remember the scriptures in verses 17 through 19. But you, beloved, remembering the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. And so the words, but you, shows us that Jude is now shifting back to the believers. And what he tells us, he says, hey, remember what the apostles had already written. They had the book of Acts, no doubt circulating at this time. And Paul in Acts 20 talked to the Ephesian elders about savage wolves that would come in among the flock. And Second Peter talked about false teachers that would come. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And so Jude said, just like Peter said, these scoffers, these mockers who denied the truth were there among you. Prophecy was actually being fulfilled in their midst. And what were they to do? Well, they were to remember these truths and they were to abide in them and walk in them so they wouldn't be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's sad when churches do not teach through the Bible because believers are not equipped in the word and they don't know the Bible. And so therefore, oftentimes they're caught to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes into the church or even false teaching. This is why we teach the Bible verse by verse. So you know the truth and so you can stand in the truth and to be able to defend your faith. We're to maintain the spiritual disciplines in verses 20 through 21. But you, beloved... Building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the believer is to focus not on the false teachers as much, but on building, praying, keeping, and inspecting. That is, that's the truth that we're to focus on. We're to build ourselves up in our faith. Yes, God is at work sanctifying us, but the believer also has a responsibility of building ourselves up in our faith as well by studying the scriptures, applying the truths to our life so God can work. Praying the Holy Spirit means pray it according to the leading of the Spirit that's within us. The Spirit who's within us groans and he leads us and, and guides us and teaches us how to pray as we walk with him. He puts things on our hearts. Keeping yourself in the love of God does not mean that we maintain our salvation by works, but it means that we continue to maintain a close relationship with the Lord by not letting anything come in between us and the Lord. This can be sin, of course. Sin can pull you away from the Lord. But sometimes even things that are not bad in and of themselves can also pull you away from the Lord. Greg Laurie has a good quote. He says, when good things get in the way of the best things, they, they can become bad things, right? And sometimes we experience that in our life. When, you know, when those good things get in the way of our best things, then they can even become bad things. And the Lord says, hey, no, I want you to focus on me first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Build yourself up in your faith, and the Lord will give you strength to be able to stand. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, this helps us to keep those best things before us, right? Jesus is coming back to resurrect and rapture his church. 
and the believer is to be watching, waiting. We're to be like a first century Jewish bride who was waiting for their bridegroom to come and sweep them away, not defiling their garments whatsoever. And as we keep the coming of the Lord in mind, then we can keep the best things in front of us. We're to respond to the leading of the Spirit, verses 22 and 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So the believer is to use discernment from the Spirit as we walk with the Lord. Now the Scripture gives us command after command that the servant of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome, and the servant of the Lord is not to be contentious, and the servant of the Lord is not to be an person who argues all the time. We're to contend, but not be contentious. We're to give to everyone an answer, but with meekness and fear, as Peter says. So we're not to go out and look for doctrinal arguments, right, or, or doctrinal fights. But as they come to us, then we need to, in love and grace and truth, be able to defend our faith, and so we can, we can deliver those who might be in the situation. There might be some who are just weak, young, immature believers who are being swayed. And on those folks, we have compassion. We softly and out of love minister to them so they're not persuaded by this teaching. But there might be others who are being pulled in to this teaching more and more, and they're actually starting to teach these things. And Jude says we might have to have a strong hand with them, even pulling them out of the the fire, hating even the, the garments that they're defiled by. Clothing in Scripture represents a person's lifestyle. And when you do ministry, we need to make sure that we beware that we're not contaminated by that. Like these doctors, right, who go into these different camps, these, you know, these different camps with disease and things like that. Yes, we're to go out among the world and do ministry, but we're to do it in a cautious and careful way that you and I are also not contaminated and also share in the sins of others. So we need to be strong and be, led in, and be led by the Spirit in how we minister and where we minister. Finally, in verses 24 and 25, we see we're to rest in our all-sufficient God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. You see, our God is able The scriptures say he's able to save. He's able to establish. He's able to aid us. He's able to subdue. And he's even able to keep us from stumbling into false teaching. John tells us that we have an anointing from God and that we know the truth as we follow the Lord. Jude closes here with a doxology. He talked about God's greatness, his grace, his wisdom, his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, his power, his eternity, the fact that he lives forever, and truth. Now, these verses remind us that the believer is to be more about who we're for than what we're against. There's a lot that we can be against out there, right? And at times we need to speak forth and say that's wrong. But the believer is to be known more for who we're for. We're for the Lord. We're for truth. We're for the greatness of God, this glorious God that we just mentioned. That's why we contend for the faith, because when people get caught up in these false teachings, they steal the joy and the blessing of someone being able to experience a gracious and loving relationship with God. They rob people of salvation. They're spiritual blind leaders of the blind. And even Jesus, who is love, was willing to call out the Pharisees and the false religious teachers. So in closing, 
we have a history, a legacy that's been passed down from us, from our founders. And that is we're to contend for the faith. The faith refers to the foundational doctrines of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As we walk with the Lord, we're to abide in the truth, stand in the truth, and if the Lord calls us, we'll even need to contend for the truth. Amen?